Welcome to the latest episode of Silver Screen Superman, Bureau 42 series going through all the silver screen incarnations of Superman to celebrate his 75th anniversary. As usual, I'm your host, Blaine Dowler. This month we're looking at Superman 3, which was first released in 1983, and the third installment starring Christopher Reeve as Superman. Perhaps it would be more accurate to say this was the first installment guest starring Christopher Reeve as Superman. Coming off of number two, the Saul Kynes had produced another success. They had managed to fire Richard Donner, gotten Richard Lester to finish it, and still made a fair amount of profit off the film. So they're trying to go for a similar formula, where they can, again, scale back the budgets and hopefully increase the profitability because people would keep coming to see the films. They kept on Richard Lester as the director, and they kept on David and Leslie Newman, who were credited as the screenwriters. They were the first ones to rewrite Mario Puzo's scripts. Previously, the shooting scripts had been done by Tom Mankiewicz. The Newmans had written some of the scenes that Richard Lester brought in so that he could call Superman to his own as far as the directorial credits were concerned. But this is the first time that they did a shooting script for the Superman films from start to finish. There was a bit of background coming into this. There were a few changes that were going to be made from the original concepts. In the original concept for this film, Brainiac, the alien artificial intelligence, would team up with Mr. Mixie Spitlick, who's a fifth-dimensional imp from the comics, and they'd be the ones giving Superman a run for his money. Now, this would involve bringing in Bizarro as a failed clone of Superman, as well as introducing Supergirl, who is Superman's cousin, and, at least in the comics, they could argue that she was a prisoner of Brainiac. At the time, though, the Salkines, as always, were focused on the business aspects, and the most bankable movie star at the time was Richard Pryor. So they spoke to Pryor and were able to get him to sign on to be part of Superman 3. Now, the downside to having a big star coming in and signing on for your film is that you want to make sure that the audiences can recognize him and that they know it's Richard Pryor. The concept of either Brainiac or Mystic Spitlick is a very expensive concept, and it's hard to put on screen without heavy makeup. And by the time you have enough makeup to make Richard Pryor look like either character, he doesn't look like Richard Pryor anymore. The other thing that they're looking at is future investments. If they had another hit on their hands, well, let's bring Pryor back because he would still be bankable. Which means he can't be a completely villainous character. And yet Superman doesn't really need allies aside from Lois and Jimmy. So to deal with this, the decision was made to ditch both Brainiac and Mixie Spitlick. With that, Supergirl was out as well, and they replaced them with human villains. So Richard Pryor's character became Gus Gorman, a computer savant. He was able to program computers to do pretty much whatever he wanted, including apparently rewrite their own hardware by reprogramming the software. The people who wrote this movie apparently are not terribly familiar with computer science in any way, shape, or form. And that also meant that because he was an original character, they could rewrite it so that he could be on a path to redemption and end up teaming up with Superman for the the big finish, potentially coming back in a sequel. Now, another change that they had coming off of number two was that they were fairly upset with Margot Kidder. As I mentioned last month, Margot Kidder was pretty outspoken when it came to the way that the Selkines were treating Donner and how she felt about it. So her reaction to that was pretty simple. She just went out in public and said, hey, they're screwing this guy over. And so the Selkines kept her option to come back for Superman 3, but they greatly marginalized her character which was a detriment to the franchise up to this point. Big part of the emotional core of the story had been the Lois and Clark relationship, the will they, won't they, can they, and bringing it through that way. 
what happens in this one is that Lois has a quick scene at the beginning, at the very beginning. The very beginning is this convoluted comedy sequence after the introduction of Richard Pryor's character that introduces a couple of the villains. It even shows one of the villains turning Superman's head. So Clark Kent is looking at her, which tells you already Lois Lane is kind of out of his mind. And he's looking for someone else as though he had learned absolutely nothing from his experiences in number two. He goes through a major sequence, ends up changing clothes in a photo booth, and the kid puts in quarters and the photo booth starts taking photos immediately when he tears three off. Uh, that's actually a bit of a cameo. The little boy who put the money in the photo booth and got the last photo was the same boy who played Baby Cowell when he landed in Kansas back in the 1978 film. After we get through that and we're back at the Daily Planet, this is where we see Lois Lane in one of her two scenes in the film, where we find out that she's going on vacation to Bermuda while Clark Kent got permission to go back to Smallville and you know, do a retrospective piece about how can small-town America stay small-town America without changing, and how much has he changed? Can he go back and actually reintegrate with small-town America after spending, you know, 15 years away from it? And in doing so, when he goes back to Smallville, he ends up meeting Lana Lang, or meeting her again. Now, Lana Lang is a character straight from the comics. She was introduced for the Superboy comics in adventure comics, at least the Superboy stories in adventure comics. And she was sort of the same type of role as Lois Lane, constantly trying to prove that Clark Kent and Superboy were the same person. At the time that this movie was released, the Lana Lang in the comics didn't know for sure that they were the same person, although she would later. So once we have this, Clark and Jimmy end up heading back to Smallville while Lois goes on her vacation. There's also a couple that win a contest. You might notice that the woman in the couple was also the short order cook from the diner scenes in Superman 2. As Clark and Jimmy go back to Smallville, this is where we get one of the action sequences in the movie that works very well. Now, there's not a lot in this movie that works very well, but this is part of it. There's a fire at a chemical plant. Superman's in there right away helping the fire. Uh, Jimmy breaks his leg, and that's what sidelines him for most of the movie and gets him out of Smallville, which frees up Clark Kent to do some of the things that his character needs to do. It puts him there alone without the photographer. And it also gives the MacGuffin that they're going to need for Superman to win the day at the end of the film. It's also the first chance for Ken Thorne to really shine. As I said, the Salkinds had released a lot of people with Superman 2 and brought in others to sort of keep the franchise on the same track while sort of stepping in the footsteps and in the footprints of the filmmakers that came before them. Now, in the second film, the score really stepped down a notch. It was still John Williams' arrangements, but now Ken Thorne was editing them and reposting them, and there were some pretty jarring cuts. This time it was still based largely on John Williams' work, but he did have more of a free hand when it came to incidental music and editing. And the musical score is a step up from Superman 2. It's probably the only aspect of the film that's a step up from Superman 2, but I think it is. Now, as we go through the film, we get this character arc for Gus Gorman as, you know, the idiot savant computer scientist who gets recruited by Robert Vaughn's character, Ross Webster, to start hijacking satellites that are designed to monitor weather and using them to control weather, as well as other things. Now, a lot of this doesn't sit very well. First of all, there's a huge difference between monitoring something and changing something. And hardware designed to do one job cannot do the other job just because someone updated the software. You can't program things to make the changes in new programming irreversible just so nobody else can change it. There's just step by step one thing after another that's wrong with this plan. It may have worked as a plan by Brainiac or Mixie Spitlick to shut the world down, but it doesn't work on its own. And another aspect of the film that really doesn't work is that Superman doesn't even know who he's up against for most of the film. He doesn't even recognize that there's villains performing these tasks until the end. The first slight hint that he gets, he doesn't even pick up on. He 
as I said, saves the chemical plant, spends some time in Smallville, and Superman ends up being given the key to the city as the city's way of saying thank you. When he's doing this, Gus Gorman shows up in a fake military uniform and gives him a piece of fake kryptonite, which I'm assuming was a deliberate reference to the 1950 Superman serial, in which Lex Luthor tried to reproduce kryptonite. There was an ingredient he couldn't identify, filled it in with something else, dressed in a fake military uniform, and showed up at an award ceremony giving Superman an award, and laid the kryptonite on him, and the kryptonite that he created, being counterfeit, didn't have the effect he was looking for. That is pretty much note for note what happens here. I find it highly unlikely that that would be coincidental. And this is where the original concept of Bizarro came out. When this is laid on Superman, it doesn't kill him, but instead it sort of twists him and turns him into, well, the biggest jerk Superman is capable of being, which means basically playing rotten jokes and not saving people. He's not really endangering them either. He's just doing his own thing and ignoring everybody else. So while he's doing that, that gives the villains a chance to put their next plan in motion to take over all the world's oil by apparently just having all the tankers drive to the middle of the ocean where the captains just sit there and do nothing. Doesn't make a lot of sense. I don't see how they're going to make money off this. There's no ransom demands. There's nothing like that. They just told him to sit there. As far as we know, Webster doesn't even own any oil. He's got no oil concerns. He's just trying to do this. Meanwhile, the major thread for Clark Kent is that he's falling for his high school sweetheart of Lana Lang again. Now, Lana Lang is played by Annette O'Toole, who does a great job in this one. She's one of the parts of the movie that you can't really fault. A lot of Superman fans, especially the younger ones, might know her better as Martha Kent from the Smallville TV series. And apparently when she was recast as Martha Kent, placing the actress that they had in the original pilot, she found out after the fact that the producers didn't even remember that she had been in Superman 3. So it wasn't a stunt casting, they just honestly didn't realize it was the same ones. Uh, similarly, there's a character named Brad that appears in Smallville, who we're assuming is the same Brad that tipped over the bench filled with football helmets in the original Superman. As we're going through this, we are seeing signs again and again that this is really a Richard Pryor vessel, more so than a Superman film. When Superman saves Columbia from the weather satellite, we don't really see Superman go in and save that, but we hear Gus Gorman describing what he saw Superman do on the news. Now, there's some quick clips to Superman, but it's all narrated by Richard Pryor. So this is really a vessel for him to get in there and do the kind of comedy he likes, and while they're at it, Superman's in there. It's also really the start of the downfall for the series in terms of profits and budgets. So if we look at the movies up to this point, we can see the box office grosses. Now, the first three films were all profitable, no question. The only real question is, how is the audience responding and why were they profitable? A lot of times what you look at are what they call the legs, so how much money the movie makes in the long term. There's opening weekend, but the opening weekend box office for the first movie in a series says more about the faith the audience have in the cast and the crew and in the marketing plan more so than any reviews or any content about the movie itself because no one has seen it yet. If the audience responds well, then that opening weekend box office will be a relatively small percentage of the total take because people are going to see it again, they're telling their friends to go see it later, and it builds over time. So if we look at the original Superman movie, uh, looking just at the domestic numbers, so just what came out in the United States and Canada is actually grouped into the domestic numbers, it had a production budget of $55 million. The lifetime gross in domestic theaters was a little over $134 million, with an opening weekend gross of about $7.5 
So 6% of the total domestic gross came from the opening weekend. 94% came from what we call the legs of the people coming back to see it again and telling others to come see it later. Superman 2 had a similar budget. Instead of $55 million, it was $54 million. And some of that budget went into reshooting things that Donner had originally shot. Now, that one had a much higher opening weekend. Instead of $7.5 million, it was slightly over $14 million, which shows more about the faith that people had from the original marketing campaign and from the original film. Long term, the gross was only $108 million. So it didn't make quite as much, but it still brought in about double its budget. So when you add home video, guaranteed large profits. Superman 3 had the budget reduced to $39 million, approximately. At least that's according to Wikipedia, which is flagging that there is no source cited for that one. If we go to Box Office Mojo, which is where I got the rest of the numbers from, there's no budget listed there at all. With an estimated $39 million production budget, we are looking at the lifetime gross of almost $60 million. It's $59,950,623 domestic. Opening weekend was a little over $13 million. So now we're up to 22% of the total gross coming in that opening weekend, but still doing well enough long-term to make a profit. Later films in the franchise, that percentage of the box office would keep going up and up. At least the percentage of the opening weekend grosses did. So when we're judging films based on their legs, we do see a sharp downturn in terms of Superman 3. You weren't getting as many long-term sales off this one as you were of the first two, especially not off that first one. So the audiences didn't seem to be responding as well. Even as the movie plays out, when you get towards the end, there's the big action sequence that's supposed to pay off the whole film, and it is comes across as very cheesy. We've got the world's most advanced computer, which shuts down completely if you unhook a screw that's hooked into a metal plate. So there's absolutely no job for the screw to do. It's not a piece of a circuit, because the metal can still conduct. Not unless it screws in and the circuit is complete from inside, in which case, why are you using a screw? And also in which case, Gus Gorman probably would have gotten quite the electric shock when he unscrewed it with a metal screwdriver. Then it starts pulling power from elsewhere. It just doesn't make any sense in almost any way. I mean, the computer does manage to reproduce kryptonite as a kryptonite ray and learns from the previous mistakes. Again, this computer is figuring things out that can't be identified. So it's identified this missing element in kryptonite, or at least found a better substitute than the tar that Gus Gorman put in in one of the comedic sequences when he was trying to figure this out while drunk. Yeah, the movie does have a couple of redeeming factors. He said the Ken Thorne score, based on John Williams' original score, is a step up for number two in terms of the way it's edited and, and put into the film. The opening action sequence with the chemical fire is very well done. You have to give them credit for that portion. And Annette O'Toole does do a very good job as Lana Lang. But by and large, the biggest problem with this is that it's not really even a Superman concept. What I think happened with this film is they just let Richard Pryor's stardom come in and it took over too much. If it were up to me, I even looking at the concept behind the story, this doesn't feel like a Superman story. It doesn't feel like they really did the research and knew where the characters were coming from. Now, if they're planning to do Brainiac and Mr. Mixie Spitlick and bring in Supergirl in that fashion, they obviously were going back to the comics and mining them for good ideas. I'm just not sure that the people who came up with those ideas and the final decision makers were the same people. Looking back at it now, doing a primarily comedic story where you have the criminal who turns over a new leaf and becomes the hero, I would suspect that this would probably work best as a Plastic Man film. For those who aren't familiar with Plastic Man, he's a character who's been played both straight and comedic. But he was a criminal, and he becomes a reformed criminal and starts fighting on the side of good after he gets his powers. You could take this film, take Superman out entirely, replace Gus Gorman with Plastic Man, originally as Eel O'Brien, and turn him into Plastic Man, and then turn this into something that could be salvaged as a completely different beast. 
in terms of turning it into a Superman movie, I really don't see how to turn around and make it feel like Superman with the characters that they use, especially with Richard Pryor cast. The only role I could think of that Richard Pryor could actually use would be Mixie Spitlick. But again, looking at the appearance of that character, these days you could do him well with CGI, and Pryor would have just been the voice. But that, that technology wasn't available when this came out in 1983. In any event, that's our discussion of Superman 3, and it's the first of three interpretations of Superman 3. We'll be discussing at least one later on this year, possibly both. If you'd like to hear me discuss the comic book version of Superman 3, as it was largely conceived by Richard Donner, you can let me know at Bureau42Podcasts at gmail.com, or you can leave comments in the Bureau 42 articles. You are encouraged to leave reviews at iTunes as well. And please join us again next month when we cover Supergirl, which was also produced by the Salkinds, and then we'll come back to Superman 4 the month after that, going through the films in release order. So join us again next month. Thank you.